Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 42. As usual, you can send in questions to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K or send them on Facebook or Instagram. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. I just yesterday actually recorded the interview with Andy Blow, the hydration Q&A that I've been talking about. So that will be out in a couple of weeks time. So look forward to that. It was a really good one. Lots of great questions that you all sent in. So thank you for those. And I think it will be very useful for everybody to get to listen in on those and Andy's expert answers to them. Uh, so that will be out soon. In the meantime, remember that you can always take a free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to get an individual hydration strategy for your next race. And use the coupon code DASTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, to get your first box or tube of pH electrolytes for free. And thanks to Roka, the brand that redefines the standard in wetsuits, trisuits, high-performance eyewear, and other triathlon and endurance sports product lines. Many of the world's best triathletes and other endurance athletes use Roka's products. One very recent example, just the other day, as I record this, Lucy Charles won Challenge Rove and uh, she smashed the swim course as she usually does in her Roka wetsuit. Roka wetsuits are particularly great examples of Roka's innovation and uh, their search for the fastest possible performance with uh, the unique arms up technology that they have in their wetsuits to increase shoulder mobility. But also they have that arms up technology in their tri suits so that you're not restricted by the tri suit nor by the wetsuit when it comes to your feel for the water and your possibility to take translate your pool swimming into the open water without losing anything to mo- restricted mobility. You can find Roka's products on roka.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. All right, so for today's questions, the first one is from Sari in Finland, who writes, uh, Hi Michael, I have noticed that my swim times drop when I start open water swimming. In the pool, I can hold two minutes or two minutes, 10 seconds per 100 meter, but in the open water, my times are around 220 per 100 meter. Uh, by the swim types system, as uh, per your recent episode, I'm a kicktastic type, so I rely on my kick when I'm swimming. Should I try to look up while, while swimming in the open water to get my legs down uh, when I'm swimming with a wetsuit in particular? My coach says that I should just stop kicking and keep the head down, but I'm not convinced. Thank you for your answer and for the great podcast. Hi, Sari. Thank you for your question. I would say that uh, if it's if that's what it takes to keep your leg kick in the water, not above the water when you are in a wetsuit, then absolutely start to try to look up a little bit more to get your legs down slightly into the water to make sure that you can actually use your kick. I would definitely not stop kicking by any means. Remember that your kick per your swim type is uh, your current strength, but you should work to rely less on it by starting to deliberately work on developing a more efficient catch and pull through in your stroke. Uh, So in particular, check whether you're actually pushing water back or if you're perhaps pushing down on the water and potentially you might be pulling through with a very straight arm. Those are two common mistakes to, to push down 
rather than pushing back and to to pull through with a with a very straight arm so so start to deliberately work on that efficient catch and pull through to uh, to develop a less of a reliance on your kick you should still use the kick uh, at the very least if nothing else then to keep your swimming rhythm and to connect your arm stroke to your core that should drive your stroke you can think of it as your kick being what really initiates that arm stroke to core connection so if you use a six beat kick which you probably do then you might want to use a slightly stronger kick on every third kick so that's every time that you're actually entering the water with your hand with your arm stroke and you're initiating that arm stroke and then on that particular kick and that would be every third kick you kick a little bit stronger and that uh, increases perhaps your your ability to feel that connection between the arm stroke and the core it might increase your rotation a little bit and uh, and which drives again uh, that strength through your arm stroke so it's not for increased propulsion that i ask you to do this but it's to actually feel that core and the rotation driving the stroke to develop that more efficient uh, catch and pull through so I hope that this helps, Sari, and thank you so much for your question. The next question is from Matt, who writes, Hi, Michael, uh, a question for your podcast. I'm a cyclist rather than triathlete, and I'm trying to implement some of the things I have learned on your podcast and take a more polarized approach to training. My question relates to the importance of uh, getting heart rate up to 90% max during VO2 max intervals. I find that if I attempt something like four times eight minutes at 105% of my current FTP, then my heart rate hits 90% of max heart rate uh, about two to three minutes into each interval and continues to rise towards 95% unless I back off the power. These intervals are very hard. However, when doing a workout with say 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off or similar at 120% of FTP, my heart rate doesn't get much above 85% max, despite the fact I find these workouts very tough to get through. So are the shorter intervals doing what they are supposed to, or am I just wasting my time with these? Increasing the intensity doesn't seem a realistic option, especially since my FTP is from a trainer road ramp test and definitely higher than I could expect to be able to hold for an hour. I know that you do high intensity uh, VO2 max workouts and also uh, four times eight types workouts on the bike. So I wonder how your heart rate responds to these two different formats. I uh, hope this all makes sense. Regards, Matt. Thank you for your question, Matt. So just to summarize for the listeners as well, um, you know this, I'm sure, but for the listeners, the goal here, what, what Matt is trying to achieve is to spend a large amount of time at an intensity that is close to his maximum aerobic capacity, his VO2 max. Uh, so his aerobic, his oxygen uptake, his VO2 should be close to his VO2 max for as long a total duration as possible, regardless of what that type of interval is, whether he's doing those four times eight, then the VO2 in theory should be slightly lower, but he will spend a longer time there. So maybe the VO2 will be 90% and he will spend uh, a significant amount of time at that 90% mark. Whereas those VO2 max intervals, he might be spending uh, a shorter total duration close to VO2 max, but that intensity will be even higher. It will be 95% of his VO2 max in when we are actually, if we were to measure his VO2, so actually go into the lab and measure with gas exchange what his oxygen uptake is looking like. So 
So the reason that Matt here is concerned with heart rate is that heart rate uh, is a proxy and correlates with VO2. So with the heart rate not going very high on those shorter duration intervals, the, the concern here is that, well, is the VO2 actually high enough in those intervals so so that Matt is getting the benefit of the workout? Or is the VO2 also too low for whatever reason, even though the workout feels hard? So to tackle this problem, I would say that heart rate is not a perfect proxy for VO2 by any means. And in this particular situation, I think that uh, probably the most important factor to take into consideration is the buildup of core temperature. That has a big influence on heart rate. And in particular, I think that you're probably doing these intervals on the indoor trainer. So that buildup of core temperature, even with fans and cooling, can be very significant. And over an eight minute interval at 105% of your set FTP, you would generate a massive amount of heat and your heart rate increases not just in proportion to your oxygen uptake, your VO2 response, but also it increases to pump blood that will help you get rid of the heat, dissipate that heat. And for shorter intervals, even though the intensity is higher, the heat buildup overall would be smaller because the duration is just so much shorter and you have those intermittent rests in between where where you can sort of get uh, get it under control again. So you might not see that same corresponding heart rate increase for that particular reason that the heat buildup is greater in the longer intervals compared to the short intervals. And potentially this can be exacerbated on the indoor trainer compared to outdoors, although I don't have any any data to back this up, but uh, just uh, thinking, and I guess I'm trying to think if I've actually experienced this, I can't say for sure, but it might be it might be something that, that you might note that outdoors you would have less of a difference in your heart rate response. So anyway, the point here being that your heart rate here is not just a pure reflection of uh, of your oxygen uptake, your VO2 response, but also other factors, in particular heat dissipation. So uh, one example that I can give you, that I definitely can give you, is I analyze a lot of uh, inside tests, which you've heard me talk about on the podcast before. Uh, these tests include, or the test protocol includes a 4 and a 20 minute time trial. And the maximum heart rate from these tests, it's almost always coming at the end of that 20-minute test, just because that's where heat buildup is at its greatest, even though the VO2 is clearly going to be much lower in a 20-minute test than in a 4-minute test. That's uh, There's no doubt about that, and I have a, a fairly significant data set by now to, to look at. So, so that's to give you another a clear example and illustration of this phenomenon. So you asked about my personal experience as well. Well, I just finished a block of training where I did a weekly short interval session and a weekly threshold session. So right at my FTP, not actually above it, but I can give this example to you to illustrate. That's because that's what I have been doing most recently. So for example, one of those weekly workouts would be two minute VO2 max intervals and the second would be 12 minute threshold intervals. And uh, in this in this block, in these recent weeks, my maximum heart rate for these particular workouts was 169 for those shorter intervals. That would be 94% of heart rate max and 165 for the threshold intervals or 92% of heart rate max. 
Uh, I do remember, and by the way, so we can extrapolate here that if I would have been doing something like four times eight minutes instead of four times 12 minutes and increased intensity, I would have expected my heart rate to go up to at least the same level as in those two minute intervals. Also, I did look at some of the data from my coached athletes and when they've been doing blocks like the one that you are doing with uh, one short intro session and one longer super threshold uh, set uh, or super threshold workout. And uh, when I compare that, uh, when comparing intervals in the, let's say, one to four minute range with intervals in the five to eight minute range, it's generally fairly close. It can sway one way or the other, depending on the athlete and really depending on the day. So I cannot say that one is always higher than the other. And regarding those even shorter intervals, the 30-30s that you mentioned, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, without looking too deeply into it, I haven't done that, but I know, I recognize what you described instantly. Uh, personally, it's definitely the case for me as well that those don't get my heart rate up anywhere near as, let's say, two-minute intervals. Uh, for me, and it's just actually the same for one-minute intervals for me, my heart rate really starts to get up there after 90 seconds or so. If I do 90-second intervals uh, on the bike at least, that's when I can see that that the heart rate starts to get to those peak numbers that I will see, and it's going to be roughly the same as for two-minute or even three-minute intervals. This is, of course, individual for me and not necessarily true for everybody, but just to give you an example. So uh, to summarize, to wrap up, I would say that if you feel that you are working very hard in those short intervals and you couldn't really go any harder, which is what you describe, and you do accumulate 15 to 20 minutes at around VO2 max power on a one-to-one -one or higher work-to-rest ratio, then don't worry too much about heart rate. It may just be that uh, the discrepancy in heart rate is due to that difference in heat buildup. However, to be on the safe side, I would assess what type of athlete you are. And if you are somebody who is quite strong anaerobically, so you're doing well on like short and sharp intervals, short and sharp uh, breakaways in, in races, for example, then potentially workouts like 30-30s, they would rely quite a lot on, on your strong anaerobic capacity and that the aerobic contribution might not be as great as you'd want it to uh, if you're working on your VO2 max. Uh, and this would be despite the short recoveries. So if this is the case, then I would recommend that your short intervals would uh, should be in that two to four minute range rather than 30 seconds or, or one minutes to rely more on the aerobic contribution rather than the anaerobic. Uh, for somebody like me, for example, I am anaerobically weak and aerobically strong. Uh, I still have a feeling that workouts like the 30-30s, they work great for me. As a slightly lighter VO2 sessions, session, not light by any means, but uh, it's, it's a session that is more manageable than something like six times, three minutes on, three minutes off. Uh, so, for example, if I have a few other hard workouts that week, I might choose to do that sort of lighter VO2 stimulus rather than doing like a six by three minutes on, three minutes off, which is just one of the, the hardest workouts that you can do, really, I think. So so that works for me because I know that my anaerobic contribution is not going to be very strong anyway because I just don't have that anaerobic capacity. So so that's that's my feeling. I still rate those the intervals in the 90 second to 3 minute range as my personal ideal range for working on VO2 
And I would say that on average for most athletes, even going slightly higher to two to four minutes in duration is the rule of thumb that I would give for the ideal duration. Uh, if, uh, if we're only talking about maximizing the effect from, from this particular short interval session, but you need to assess where you are and what sort of time range works well for you. Hope that this helps Matt. Final question for today is from Eric in Pennsylvania and Eric writes, Hi Michael, thanks, thanks for putting together a great podcast and continuing to produce great content. Uh, I really enjoy listening, especially having an engineering background to the scientific approach really speaks to me. My question is uh, in regards to swimming stroke rate. I started swimming as an adult a couple of years ago and I absorbed as much content online as I could to help me figure it out. I found the swim smooth content uh, to be highly beneficial and again, it really speaks to my analytical mind. They talk about stroke rate and have a stroke rate BMI chart. I currently have a CSS, critical swim speed pace, of just under 2 minutes per 100 yards. And my natural stroke rate at that pace is around 52 strokes per minute, counting both arms. On the chart, they recommend I raise my stroke rate to about 60 strokes per minute to further improve my CSS pace. I've done a stroke rate ramp test on my own and found that 58 to 60 strokes per minute was the second was the second optimal stroke rate uh, for me after my natural 52 strokes per minute. So I do think if I can raise my stroke rate as suggested, I will begin to improve my CSS pace significantly. However, at this point, if I try swimming at that 58 to 60 strokes per minute, I feel like I can only do maybe 200 yards before feeling exhausted and whatever stroke technique I have starts falling apart. Firstly, I'm interested to know your opinion regarding the stroke rate chart and whether this is actually useful for most people. But my primary question is, do you have any suggestion of how to get used to swimming at that higher stroke rate so that I can maintain it for, say, a mile? Thanks again for the great podcast. Thank you, Eric. Uh, this is a great question and uh, very timely since we just had Paul Newsom on in episode 188, I believe. Let me just check quickly. Yes, episode 188. I'll link to that in the episode description. Uh, so regarding the your questions here, first we have the BMI chart, the stroke rate chart. Uh, we'll, I'll link to that in the episode description as well for people that want to see it. I think it's very useful to identify where you currently are. Absolutely. And the ramp test is also excellent. However, it's almost impossible to do it yourself. I would not expect anybody to be able to get accurate results from doing the ramp test yourself. You have too many things to consider there with RPE, pace, number of strokes, stroke rate, etc. That uh, you, you really shouldn't, and you really shouldn't rely on the, the number of strokes measured by your Garmin either. So, uh, so that's why you need to do that with a partner to really make the most of it. And either way, that uh, the question isn't so much about whether the ramp test is good or not, but uh, even if, uh, let's say, that your ramp test is exactly correct, it's impossible to jump from where you are right now, 52 strokes per minute as your natural stroke rate, to 58 or 60, uh, or even 62 that you mentioned from the... No, 60 from the BMI chart as well. Uh, that's just too big a jump. It's like uh, being at a, a, an FTP of 200 watts and starting to try to do threshold intervals at 250 watts suddenly. It's just not possible. You need to make the change gradually to be able to make an effective change. And also another thing that I want to clarify here, uh, we care 
about your stroke rate at uh, at any intensity, not just CSS. So it can be intensities faster than CSS and intensities slower than CSS. There's nothing magical about your stroke rate at just at CSS because CSS is nothing magical, even though it's a useful thing to track, of course. I, I do definitely think it is. Uh, but uh, but your stroke rate, when we're talking about increasing your stroke rate, I wouldn't talk about increasing it at an intensity, but just increasing it in general. So for the important question here, how to increase it and improve it, uh, the by far and away the best thing to do here is to get a tempo trainer, Finis tempo trainer, and train with it in mode three, which is the stroke rate mode. So it will you can set it to, for example, 60 for argument's sake, and then it will beep every single second so that over the course of a minute, you have, will have taken 60 strokes, 30 with your right arm and 30 with your left arm. And I've used this a lot personally this year. And what I do is I basically find find what my current threshold stroke rate is and what my current VO2 max stroke rate is and what my tempo stroke rate is. And then when doing these kinds of workouts, uh, I try to gradually increase my stroke rate for each particular uh, type of, of set or, or type of workout. So for example, uh, earlier this year when I did a VO2 block in swimming, I found that the stroke rate that I was swimming at naturally at my VO2 max effort, that was 80 or 81 strokes per minute. So I did that the first couple of weeks and then I, and I set the tempo trainer to actually be whatever it was that was my natural stroke rate. Then for the next couple of weeks, I used 82 strokes per minute. So I just increased it by one stroke per minute, then 83 for one week and then 84 finally, which was probably a bit too overambitious. I, I just managed to get through that workout at that stroke rate. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was uh, basically as high as I could go. I would not have been able to do 85 or 86 in that particular block, but maybe next time that I do the same block, I'll start at something like 83 strokes per minute and I'll finish at something like 85 or 86. And I did the same for other types of, of training blocks that I've had. So in a threshold type of block, I think I started at 76 strokes per minute and I got up to, to 80 strokes per minute and for tempo efforts, I got from 74 or something to 78. And all along, my natural stroke rate and speed across the board of intensity has increased. Uh, the one thing that you may note here is that I talk about workouts and main sets that have some form of intensity, even if it's just tempo, so sort of like maybe Ironman pace or a little bit faster than Ironman perhaps. But what I don't do is to try to deliberately speed up my stroke rate in my easy swimming. And that's something that I don't recommend anybody do. Because I think that's just a slippery slope and an easy way to end up doing too much hard swimming unintentionally. So let that easy endurance and recovery pace stroke rate be what it is. And it may come up organically. It probably will at some point when you get more used to higher stroke rates at uh, all the other intensities that you do your workouts at. So, and if it doesn't, you shouldn't, you don't need to be concerned with that. Uh, even if the stroke rate doesn't come up, you should see yourself getting faster because you're just getting fitter. So you're, you're actually able to push more water back and, and therefore move forward at a quicker pace. So uh, be concerned with the stroke rate that you can hold at those intensities that are slightly faster. So race pace and above and, uh, and slightly below, depending on what distance we're talking about, of course. If we're talking about sprint distance triathlon, we're not just concerned with uh, with race pace, but also intense paces that are lower than race pace. 
And uh, so if you are able to increase these stroke rates at these paces, then that's all good and you don't need to concern yourself with that those stroke rate increases in easy swimming. So this is how I'd go about and how I do go about increasing my stroke rate and my speed. But also, I didn't do this specifically to increase my stroke rates. But actually, the reason that I did this is to increase my fitness, period, and my speed when I'm swimming. Uh, because I used to use the swim finesse tempo trainer a lot in mode one. And I would try to, for example, in a VO2 max workout, set it to beep every 19 seconds or something like that and try to hit the 25 meter wall every 19 seconds so hit uh, 25 meter in 19 seconds hit hit 50 meter in 38 seconds and hit 100 meter in 116 or something like that and uh, and that was good it pushed myself a lot but it pushed myself probably too much i was too outcome focused rather than process focused and that's why that's the main reason that I switched to using mode free. So I found out what my stroke rate was, and then I just decided that well, I'm going to swim at this stroke rate because I can usually manage this, whether I have a a really good day or just a normal day or a slightly bad day. I can still follow the process and keep my my arms turning over. And some days I will feel really strong, and I will be swimming at 119 pace for that that type of workout and some days i won't be feeling as strong and i might only swim 121 pace for for that type of workout but that's okay i'm getting the workout in i'm i'm following the process and and i'm definitely working as hard my perceived effort is the same in all of those workouts uh, so uh, so that's uh, the reason that i i did this change it wasn't to increase stroke rate but to increase fitness in general and i did that through this process focused process process focused approach so you're not just working on your stroke rate, you're also working on your fitness period. And that's a great added bonus, if you will, of trying to increase your stroke rate. And one interesting observation that I made is that it feels when you're doing those intervals as though the stroke rate is quite low at first when you start out. But then it feels as though the tempo trainer is actually speeding up and the beeps come closer and closer so uh, you actually will note that probably your tendency at least this was the case for me is that the stroke rate drops even though it feels like you're keeping your stroke rate the same and that's what happens when you when you feel that the tempo trainer tries to speed you up it's not it's just stupid and it's just going at the same constant stroke rate it's uh, your tendency to slow down and that's something that you can you can work on and try to counter with the tempo trainer so that's it for today's questions. I'll link to the Swim Smooth or the interview with Paul Newsom from Swim Smooth, episode 188, and the interview with Steven Seiler, episode 177, which was mentioned here in the second question on the different types of intervals and heart rate responses. Uh, and actually, I want to give a shout out, and this shout out includes one more mini question that I'll answer. And this is from Claire, who wrote an email to me saying, I bought your 70.3 intermediate plan, so thought you might like some feedback. Uh, my compliance was uh, just under 95%, so that's very good. Uh, and I also should add that I had a hip replacement nine months ago and thought doing a 70.3, which was my first, would be a fabulous goal and incentive. On Sunday, I did uh, the Outlaw Hulkman 70.3 in Norfolk here in the United Kingdom. I was absolutely stunned to come second in my age group behind someone who was at Kona last year. So Claire, wow, that is uh, absolutely fantastic and big congratulations on your achievement, uh, both the race achievement, of course, but also following the plan uh, so thoroughly and having that compliance just under 95% is brilliant. That's what everybody should shoot for. So well done there. 
Uh, Claire goes on to write, I did the fastest swim ever in competition, managing 150 per 100, and had a great bike as well. It all felt effortless. And then came the run. Uh, this was super hard, as I had not pushed my pace uh, in training to be kind to my hip. Consequently, the run was slow. In the last four miles, however, I remembered advice from a hillwalking friend who said that when you're feeling extremely tired, try to go a bit faster. This sounds mad, but I did increase pace. I felt fine and I ran the last four miles faster than previous four. So I now need to improve my run pace. Any ideas how to do this for a 60 plus female would be appreciated. Uh, for your information, I took beetroot shots for five days before the race, and I think this made a notable difference. Definitely a convert. All right, uh, Claire. So with improving the run, your run pace under these circumstances, having done a hip replacement and being in your 60s, one thing that I would definitely recommend you do is strength training. And uh, of course, what type of strength training you can do might depend a bit on what uh, your hip can tolerate with the hip replacement. If it can tolerate heavy lifting, I would recommend doing that. If it can tolerate plyometrics, it doesn't have to be any extreme plyometrics, any high jumps or drops or things like that, but just something, then uh, that would be even better. Or like not doing, it's not an either or proposition, but you know, having both of those heavy strength training and plyometrics. Both of these, both the heavy strength training and plyometrics will have a direct impact on performance, I am absolutely sure. But also the strength training, the heavy strength training in particular, which should allow you to run more or run faster in training. So you don't need to be as concerned because you're building strength, you're building resilience, and, and that will allow you to run faster in training, which is, uh, I guess, the, the primary key to for you to run faster. So basically anything you can do that will allow you to not hold back as much in training will be a game changer. So strength training should be one of them. Uh, the other thing that I think could work for you is to try some run-walk. So uh, instead of running a set of intervals, like for example, 30 seconds fast, 30 seconds easy, you might actually do something like 30 seconds fast and 20 seconds pure walking to reduce the overall impact, but still get those benefits of running fast. And for longer intervals that you have in the plan, for example, workouts like 10 minute threshold intervals what you can do there is to insert 20 second walking breaks every three or four minutes or so and that will reduce the, the overall impact the impact force forces so that it might be a bit kinder on your hip but it will still give you more or less the same benefit uh, because the, the walking breaks are so short in comparison to the running segments there so finally, to lessen the impact, but still do intervals and work on your speed, consider doing quite a lot of your interval work, if possible, either uphill or on the treadmill or both. So treadmill with an incline. And doing intervals like these uphill, whether we're talking short or longer intervals, that will, especially for you in your 60s, be beneficial because it will help you also retain muscle mass, which will allow you to run faster. And speaking of retaining muscle mass, outside of running, make sure that your nutrition is good and in particular pay attention to getting in enough protein and at frequent intervals to retain your muscle mass. So just as a rough guideline, maybe something like 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day spread out over perhaps four meals or snacks throughout the day. That will be a good starting point for you. 
All right, that was about it. Finally, a house cleaning item that I talked about in recent Q&As and podcast episodes. If you are going to the 7.3 World Championships in Nice in September and, and you are interested in having a meetup for that triathlon show listeners, then let me know. Send an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K and we'll put something together. I'll be there for two weeks leading up until the race. Big thanks to our sponsors that uh, keep this show going. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test and get your first box or tube uh, of electrolytes for free with the promo code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their range of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and take 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.